Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio, episode 93, seven powerful conversations to support you in the new year. Welcome back to another episode, my friend. I am your host, Josh Trent. Thank you for spending your time with me here on the podcast. This is where every week I'm bringing you access to global experts in all things wellness, behavior change, and new technologies. On this podcast, you'll learn from exceptional people who are dedicating their lives to being a positive force for our physical and emotional wellness. My intention with the show is that together, we'll discover the connections between our emotions and healthy habits to live our best life and enjoy the process. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Supplements, a company I'm stoked to partner with, who actually walks the talk with their values of non-GMO, pesticide-free, real food supplements that fuel us for the wellness journey. Head on over to perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce, enter code wellnessforce to save 10% off your entire order. Welcome back, my friend. It's your friend, Josh. We're here in a new year. So to kick it off, I felt inspired to share seven incredible conversations for seven steps to greater wellness in 2017 here on Wellness Force Radio. Now, if you're tuning in for the first time, this will be a unique experience for you to get in touch with the types of guests and topics we dive deep into on the show. And if you're a return listener, this is an incredible chance for you to absorb seven powerful concepts from these world-class leaders to support you in the new year. Today on the podcast, you're going to hear from best-selling author Gretchen Rubin, the co-founder of Whole30, Melissa Hartwig, Dr. Jade Tita from Metabolic Effect, the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, Dr. John Gray, Gay and Katie Hendricks, you may remember Gay from his role on The Secret, Drew Canoli, the founder of Organifi, and Commander Mark Devine from Seal Fit and Unbeatable Mind. In episode 51 with Gretchen Rubin, she discussed how a casual lunch with a friend sparked her to study human behavior and our habits to then discover pattern recognitions in research and end up writing her best-selling book, Better Than Before. She'll talk about why knowing thyself must happen before any habit is ever changed, her four-tendency type model, and the secret to habit change she's found from decades of research. How do people respond to the expectations presented to them, and how do these four tendency types relate to our living life well? Be sure to check out episode 51 for the full interview. There have been a lot of things that have been knocking around in my brain that I wasn't able to put into a pattern that I wasn't able to make sense of. Because, you know, I'd been writing about happiness. I wrote the Happiness Project, Happier at Home, and I have this blog. Now I've just, now I've written on my blog for 10 years. I just passed my 10-year anniversary. And I had noticed that a lot of times it wasn't that people didn't know what made them happy, what make them happier. They had identified it. Like they were like, I know I'd be happier if I exercised. I know I'd be happier if I quit sugar. I know I'd be happier if I could make consistent progress on uh, my blog. I know I would be happier if I got more sleep. I know I'd be happier if I stopped binge watching Game of Thrones every night until 3 a.m. But they weren't they weren't able to act on it, you know. And so I began very became very intrigued with the role that habits could play in helping people to be happier, healthy, healthier, more productive, more creative. But then I also started noticing that I would talk about things I had done and people would like in the happiness project, I would say something like, Oh, I decided to start a blog and I write on my blog six days a week. And people would say, but how did you get yourself to do it? And I would say something like, well, I, I just decided that I thought it would make me happier. So I tried it and it did make me happier. So I did it. And then they would say to me, but how did you get yourself to do it? And I was like, I, I don't understand. Like, what's the problem? You know, and like over and over and over, I began to notice this. And I also began to notice other patterns. People would say things like, well, the minute something's on my schedule, I don't want to do it. Interesting. I don't have that reaction. Or people who would say things like, well, I would never keep a New Year's resolution because January 1st is an arbitrary date. And I'd be like, hmm, that's interesting. Why do so many people say that exact comment? It never has struck me that January 1st is arbitrary. Like that, that just kind of caught my attention. Mm -hmm. But when my friend said this thing about being on the track team, I was like, something's going on here. I'm seeing these big patterns that are affecting the way that people form habits like what, what's going on? I could sense that there was some logic to it or there was some pattern underneath the surface that would explain why people were saying the same thing. Some of, and many of whom were very different from my reactions in similar situations. And so that's, and when she said that about the track team, I really got me focused. What is different 
about when she was on the track team and why she and 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 her situation now. Now there's a there's so many things like it's confusing because it's like is it her age? Is it her family circumstance? Is it team spirit? Is it location? Is it weather? Is it, there's a million things. What did I think was going on? And that's what started me really focusing on this idea of an expectation. How do people respond to an expectation? And the way that expectations are presented um, makes a huge difference in how people respond. And that was sort of a major clue. That little comment from her was a big puzzle piece for me. So it doesn't sound too dramatic. There was no lightning bolts involved. It was kind of similar to your first experience where you felt a shift and it took time to explore it. It, it was, it's interesting. It was sort of in between, like it hit me like a buzz. Like she just said something very important. Yeah. I don't know why it's important, but I often have that feeling. I'm like a person who like, I'm kind of susceptible to epiphany, which is one of my favorite things about myself. And I will often lock in on something and I will, I will be like, this is important, but I don't know why. And it can mm-hmm. sometimes take me years to understand what, like Andy Warhol, I love Andy Warhol. I read his stuff. I I don't even like his art that much. I love his writing and like what he says. And often I will be turning over and over in my mind something that Andy Warhol has said. Being like, what does he mean by that? Why is that important? And it it's just takes a long time to figure it out. And that's how I felt with her. It wasn't that it made everything clear. It was just like it was like the question became the question became clear the answer was not yet clear (laughs) absolutely (laughs) well this exploration path i mean i think everyone i know has a habit they want to change there's an ocean of information out there to confuse even the most intelligent person (laughs) like have a cheat day get up at five and meditate go to a new seminar eat more broccoli you write profoundly this is a great quote uh, from your site. Unfortunately, we've all learned from tough experience. No magic, one size fits all solution exists. And that the real secret to habit change is that in order to change our habits, we must first know ourselves. So before we talk about habits, Gretchen, what does this self-exploration, this self-awareness look like for a first-time reader? How do we begin to recognize our true nature? Well, you know, I think that you put your finger right on it. And this is the great challenge of our lives. I mean, and this is not new, like, by the way, know thyself is on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. So this is like the most ancient piece of wisdom, but it is so true because really the only way we can make a happy life, the only way we can change our habits is really on the foundation of our own nature, our own interests, our own values. Um, and one of the things I try to do in all my books, and particularly better than before, is to point out differences among people. Because I think it's, it's human nature to think everybody sees the, way, the world the way I, I do. And if, if something works for me, it's going to work for you, Josh. Like, hey, mm-hmm. Josh, I don't eat any sugar. That's what you should do. If you would just give up sugar, you'd feel so much better. Then all your cravings would go away. Then you like, And you're like, but I don't want to give up sugar. You know what I mean? It's like, no, it works for me, Gretchen. That doesn't mean it works universally. And so we have to try to understand um, how we're alike and different. Now, they say there are two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people who divide the world into two kinds of people and the kind of people who don't. And I'm the kind of people who does. And I'm constantly saying, are you a morning person or a night person? Are you an abstainer or a moderator? Are you a finisher or an opener? Are you a simplicity lover or an abundance lover? Because I think a lot, a lot of times, even these like very, very simplistic categories can, can illuminate patterns of what works for us and what doesn't work for us. So, so say you're an abundance lover versus a simplicity lover. So you might say, and you're the boss, you're the boss of me. And you come into my office and you say, Hey, Gretchen, there's too much stuff here. You got too much on your bulletin board. You got too much on your desk. You got too many tabs open on your monitor. You need bare shelves. You need clean surfaces. There's, it's too much noise. There's too much going on. You're going to be more creative and efficient if you would bring more simplicity into your life. Mm. Well, that could be very true for you, but I'm a, if I'm an abundance lover, that's not going to work for me. I like choices. I like profusion. I like a little bit of buzz. I like collections. I like a lot going on. That's what works for me. And so it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just that how do we create an environment where everyone can thrive? And when you know something about yourself, then it's not I'm right, you're wrong, or you're right, I'm wrong. It's just like, you know what? You like it to be one way. I really like it to be another way. So how do we work this out? There's, you know, once you have a term, like a vocabulary for it, it's much easier to talk about it dispassionately instead of saying, like, why do you always do this? Or, you know, why can't you do this? Why don't you respect my ways? It's just you're a morning person. I'm a night person. You know, you want to do it first thing in the morning. The first part of the morning is not a good time for me. 
Let's work it out. For episode 71 with Melissa Hartwig, we talked about her new book, Food Freedom Forever, and I asked her questions about a specific chapter in her book called Your Brain on Food, where she talks to us about super palatable foods, the pleasure and reward centers in the brain, what creates these habit loops, and we'll discover satiety and satiation, the difference between the two, how to get back in touch with the foods the way nature intended us, and the emergency break foods, the ones that we can't stop consuming and why. Be sure to check out episode 71 for the full interview. This section in your book, it starts with food. You named it Your Brain on Food, which is like, yeah. honestly, that could be a book title just itself. But, yeah. but in this section, you talk about ancient signals in a modern world. And this is beautiful quote. Food scientists have engineered chemicals and processed foods that light up the reward centers in the brain for a different reason than nature intended, not because they provide vital nutrition, but because they are scientifically designed to stimulate our taste buds. What was the research that you pulled from on this? I mean, why was that such a powerful statement for you to write? Oh, that so that chapter was like my baby, right? I think I probably wrote that chapter first out of every single thing in the book because I was like, there's so much that needs to be said here. Um, there are just there's so much really interesting research on the subject of supernormally stimulating foods in in nature, for example. Some of the research I came across, like if you give an, a bird an egg that is bigger and shinier than the own egg that it laid, the bird will sit on the bigger, shinier egg, even though the bird knows that it's not real. And it's so fascinating that you see this in nature where like pleasure and reward centers are drawn to the things that are bigger, grander, and in our bodies, our pleasure and reward centers are drawn to the things that are super normally stimulating. They taste sweeter, fattier, saltier than we could ever get in nature. And even though we know that they're fake, we prefer them. And because scientists have figured this out, it basically gets us stuck in this loop of craving, overconsumption, guilt, shame, which only leads to stress and more cravings. And mm -hmm. like, it's this awful roller coaster that we just can't get off. But it's because scientists are sort of um, bastardizing the relationship with food that we would have from like a purely biological perspective. Have you ever looked at the work of Damon Gamow? He was the number one documentary for sugar in Australia. And it was just incredibly powerful movie where he just ate like the regular recommended daily amount in Australia. Yeah. Have you seen this one? I have, yes. Oh my gosh. He basically, he came on the show. He talked about, he was in this one study, Melissa, and they were giving children pudding. And they would actually find this spark point, this sweet point where it was yes. as much possible sugar as you could put into a child's mouth without them having kind of a gross response. And so the way he described it, my heart started to bleed. I'm thinking, why are we paying these food scientists to basically trick the metabolism and trick this hyperpalatability of a child's tongue? I mean, how do you not let this emotion upset you when you go into your work and when you start doing your studies? I mean, I'm, first of all, we're not paying them. The pudding people are paying them, right? And I think we have to just understand that like, from them, it's a purely business perspective. If they make the pudding right to that bliss point, they'll sell more pudding. And I totally understand that. And they are free to run their business, just like I am free to vote with my dollar and not purchase their pudding. So I try not to get really caught up in like the I feel like that's wasted energy, right? And they're like, the system shouldn't be like this. And it's mm. really not fair. Like I put my energy into like, what can I do? How can I model the kind of behavior that I'm trying to inspire? How can I share my resources with people and let them know that there's an alternative? How can I make the whole 30 as good and as accessible as it possibly can? So more and more people will start voting with their dollars and not buying the pudding. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that refresher and that reminder of where we can put our energy. I'll just go ahead and take a deep breath right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when we look at habits, this is such a big part of your work. And I know it's really what you're gearing a lot of the Food Freedom Forever book around, but habits are our life. I mean, everything we do stems from kind of our beliefs, then it goes into our thoughts, and then it goes into our actions. You talk about the difference between satiety, this physiological response, and then satiation, you know, which is an estimate of our own being full perception. Can you describe the difference between satiety and satiation? Yeah. So true satiety happens in the digestive tract. It's like a physiological function where the body is sensing that it has enough nutrients and a wide enough variety of nutrients to be full and satisfied in terms of your survival. So when you've got food that comes from nature that has protein and fat and lots of diverse micronutrients and fiber and water, all of that stuff sends signals to your gut that says at some point, 
I'm okay. I'm full. You don't need to eat anymore. So the example I give in the book is like when you're eating like a grass fed piece of prime rib, it's delicious. You love it. The first bite is so good. But by like the 20th bite, there's something in your body that's saying, I'm good. I, I don't need to eat anymore. The by contrast, satiation is your perception of your own fullness. It kind of happens in the brain and not in the gut. And it's based on a number of factors. It can be based on whether you're simply tired of the flavor of the food you're eating or your jaw is sick of chewing or your stomach becomes so physically distended that you can't eat anymore. But satiation is not indicative of true satiety. You can take a tub of movie theater popcorn and eat and eat and eat and eat because there's no complete protein. The fat is fake. They've sucked the fiber out. They've sucked the water out. They've you know, made the calories even more bioavailable. And until you're physically full or like tired of putting hand to mouth, there's going to be no signal that tells you to stop eating. Mm. So if we're eating foods that are far more likely to, to deny that true satiety, and all we have left is this like emergency ejector seat that says, oh my gosh, I've just eaten a whole tub of popcorn. I should probably stop. Like that only sets us up for that overconsumption cycle. So if in life we have these habits that start at a super early age, they're connected to emotions, which we'll talk about. But then if we're not getting this sense of being full, you know, we have this leptin dysregulation, we have mm -hmm. our hormones that are out of whack. How do we go about this, Melissa? I mean, just even defining what healthy habits are, is there a beginning framework? I know you go super deep in the book, but just here on the air in a few sentences, is there kind of a beginning framework for getting back in touch with satiety versus satiation? So you basically have to go back to eating foods the way nature intended. Again, your body is so elegant and it has all of these hormones like ghrelin and, and systems that, you know, signals that your gut will send to your brain. And it wants to, your body wants to be able to tell you like, I'm hungry and it's legitimately hungry, not a craving, or I'm full and it's okay to stop eating because I've got all the micronutrients I need. You just need to get back to a place where you can actually trust the signals that your body has been so desperately trying to send you that you have been overriding for the last 20 years because you've been chronically dieting. And so when your body says you're hungry, you're like, shut up, I'm on a diet. <laughs> or because of the foods that you've been feeding it where your body doesn't know up from down and all your hormones are out of balance and you don't have those. So getting back to through something like the Whole30, getting back to eating food the way nature intended you to eat food and really resetting your taste buds and resetting your hormones goes a huge way, even in just 30 days, to you being able to trust the signals your body is sending you again. You mentioned this food with no breaks, which is such a cool visual. I'm picturing like the e-brake on an old Honda. Yeah. These foods don't have it. I mean, certain foods mm -hmm. like for people, brownies. For me, it's like dark chocolate. Like I cannot have, I talked about this with Gretchen. I can't have dark chocolate in my house. And I just know that about myself. I end up in a stainer. I, I can't moderate those types of things. How do people recognize the foods with no breaks when they're going into this journey? I think it's really simple. It's like, what is the stuff that once you start eating, you just can't stop eating it? Because the problem isn't that you start eating it. The problem is that once you're in it, you feel totally out of control. You feel like you want to stop, but you can't. You no longer even want the food, but you're, but yet you're still consuming it. You eat, you know, you tell yourself you're going to have one glass of wine and then it turns into two glasses of wine and you're ordering for pizza and your face is in the bag of potato chips, like gateway foods. I think everybody, I mean, if you ask them really quick, like what is one kind of food that you just can't control yourself with, everybody would have at least one. And I think if you force people to think about it, they'd come up with a pretty decent list. For episode 67 with Dr. Jade Tita, The Five Metabolic Myths, Jade talks about becoming a diet detective instead of a dieter. What keeps people stuck in the loops of failed diets over and over? Why there's no rule book for metabolism? And how to establish guidelines based on your body with structured flexibility? Jade is a master at explaining how to understand heck, hunger, energy, and cravings, what that is and how to keep it in check. Finding the Goldilocks effect zone, not too little, not too much, how it relates to keeping that hack in check, and why the metabolism is not a calculator or a chemistry set. It's a seesaw. Be sure to check out episode 67 for the full interview. I loved in your book how you call it, become a detective, not a dieter. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, really, it's like this. Dieters go by rules, right? If you're a dieter, the dieting mindset essentially says, hey, Jade, hey, Josh, there's rules I got to follow, right? Give me the 10 rules. I'll follow the 10 rules, I'll get results. Give me the meal plans. Give me the recipes. Give me the foods I can and cannot eat. This is a dieter's mindset, and it's completely freaking wrong. 
it is the thing that keeps you stuck. And it's the reason why you go, oh, that didn't work. Let me go find another group of recipes and meal lists and foods I can and cannot have and maybe another workout. Being a dieter is really thinking that there's a rule book, that everyone's metabolism works the same. And there's not a rule book. There's a set of guidelines. What's the difference? Rules are black and white. They can't be changed. Guidelines are meant to be followed for of time, and then you can paint outside the lines. And so when you think about metabolism, dieter, stop following rules. Like there's this rigid, predictable, sustainable way that you're going to lose weight. That's not true. There's nothing predictable, linear, or fair about body change. It's just not. Instead, think about being a detective, which is really about using guidelines and what I call actually structured flexibility, which means, sure, we need some structure. Hey, here's where to start. But then we need to learn the skills to be flexible, to tweak, to adjust, to sleuth like a detective to find our own path. And so moving away from rules, which is the dieter way, and picking up guidelines in this structured flexibility approach, which is the metabolic detective way. Mm-hmm. And you have this cool phrase called heck. Unpack heck, why this is so important as a detective, not a dieter. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because we say, how do we know what works for us, right? Well, there's three ways that you know that something is working for you. You know based on how your body feels, which is subjective. You know based on how your body responds, which is objective, meaning am I losing fat or not? And you know based on biofeedback or I'm sorry, bio, uh, biomarkers like blood pressure, uh, vitals, blood labs, that kind of thing. So there's these three components. HEC stands for hunger energy and cravings. It's an acronym, H-E-C, HEC. And this is the subjective piece. Your body is talking to you all the time. I call it biofeedback clues. If we're going to pretend we're detectives, right, we need to pick up clues from our metabolism. Well, our metabolism is sending those clues all the time. It tells us how hungry it is. That tells us something about its balance. It tells us how predictable and stable the energy is. That tells us something about whether it's imbalanced hormonally. It tells us about our cravings hunger, energy, cravings. If your heck is in check, your metabolism is balanced. Now, heck in check is a broad term. Those are the most important ones, but there are other biofeedback clues as well. Things like exercise performance and exercise recovery, things like mood and sleep and digestive function and uh, signs and symptoms like headaches and joint pain and things like libido, right? All these things are telling us about the vitality and the balance of our hormonal metabolic system. But hunger, energy, and cravings is the big one because these things change hour to hour and day to day. And so when you're thinking about being a metabolic detective, the first question you have to ask is, is my heck in check or is my heck out of check? Because here's the problem. Most people think the metabolism works like this. They think, okay, cut calories or burn them through exercise. And as a result of that, I'll lose weight. And as a result of that, I'll have a balanced metabolism. That's completely and utterly false and wrong. It actually works like this. First, get a balanced metabolism. As a result of that, you're more likely to eat less and be more motivated to exercise more naturally. And as a result of that, lose weight and keep it off for good. And so if we start with a balanced metabolism, we need to know, is heck in check or not? That's our hormonal system talking to us. There's a lot of people I know that talk about leptin and ghrelin and insulin mm-hmm, and cortisol mm-hmm. and adrenaline and GIP and GLP and all these hormones. Well, we don't need to be biochemists to know if our hormonal system is balanced. All we need to know is, is my heck in check or is my heck out of check? That tells us if our hormonal metabolic system is balanced or not. And that's the first key that a metabolic detective needs to know if I'm starting from a place of strength or a place of weakness. If your heck is in check, Then you can push on your metabolism. Then you can cut carbs. Then you can cut calories. Then you can cut back on fat. Then you can try certain things. But if your heck is not in check, rest assured, you do those things and you'll push yourself more out of check, which is why 95% of dieters gain the weight back and 66% end up fatter because they do not understand it does not work the way they're doing it. This is something that I think we don't pay enough attention to in the industry. Like, how are we actually feeling? It's one thing to track plus and minus calories in, calories out. But one of the cool things you talked about was this Goldilocks zone. And you said it in combination with the nutrients that we're eating. Before we get into these five myths, can you just tell us quickly like what you meant by this Goldilocks zone, how that relates to hunger, energy, and cravings? Kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah, well, think about this. The metabolism, right? We used to think the metabolism was a calculator. Now you know that's wrong. I'm telling you it's wrong. 
wrong, you know it's wrong because when you do it that way, you get rebound weight gain, right? So then we got a little bit more savvy. We said, oh, well, maybe it's not just a calculator. Maybe it's not adding and subtracting calories. Maybe hormones have to do with it. So maybe it's more like a chemistry set, right? And the problem is that's wrong too because it doesn't matter if you're counting carbs to lower insulin and change the chemistry or you're trying to manipulate you know, uh, math. Neither one of those is going to create the effect that you want because it's the wrong model. So if we're going to use a simplistic model for metabolism, which we really shouldn't, but if we're going to, it's probably better to use a seesaw or a boomerang or a, uh, you know, a tug-of-war match or a pendulum. And that is about balancing the metabolism, which means what we want to do with carbs is we want not too much, not too few, but just right. What do we want to do with fat? Not too little, not too much, but just right. What do we want to do with stress? Not too little, not too much, but just right. What do we Uh want to do with exercise? Not too much, not too little, but just Uh right. And that's going to change for each person. So essentially what we're doing is we're looking at balancing this metabolic seesaw, which is the Goldilocks point. And so if you want to know how many carbohydrates should I eat, it's not a rule, have less than 100 carbs and you'll be fine. It's how many carbs can I have that keep heck in check and keep delivering me results? That's the Goldilocks point. And we need to be thinking about this. I'll tell you guys that one thing that's really interesting. Think about what the metabolism is designed to do. The metabolism could care less about your vanity concerns. It could care less. It could care less about your time constraints. The metabolism does what it does. So what does it do? The metabolism is designed to keep us balanced in homeostasis and help us adapt to the stresses of the world around us, whether that stress is sleep deprivation, decreased calories, over-exercising, emotional stress, regardless of what it is, that's what the metabolism is doing. That's what it's designed to do. And so here's what's really interesting. Take your typical couch potato, right, who – eats more and exercises less, is their heck in check or not? It's all over the place. They want burgers, fries, pizzas, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. At my fattest, my heck was the most out of check. But then take a dieter, right, who's eating less and exercising more. Is their heck in check? No, it's not. Not even close. It's all over the place as well. As well. Why? Because both of these states, the couch potato and the dieter, have lost their Goldilocks zone. Both of them are metabolically stressed and out of balance. And so what you want to be doing is you want to move back into that Goldilocks zone, get that seesaw balanced. Now, once you do that, now you can begin to apply the next stage, which is essentially, okay, maybe I'll cut carbs. Maybe I'll cut fat. Maybe I'll work on calories. Maybe I'll up my exercise a little bit. But now you're doing it from a place of strength. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have these awesome starting line foods too, protein, fiber, and water. These are the things that fill you up. And then monitoring the starch and the fat for satiation, for that feeling of, ah, you know, because we're all going back to this three-stage yep. model. I, I studied a lot of work from Charles Duhigg, uh, The Power of Habit, and he talks about we have this cue, we have this response, this reaction to it, and then we get the reward. And it's this model that we see all the time. I don't care who you are or what you do. We're all looking for that deep breath. I'm just feeling like in this model, how do we know when to add in fat or when to put in start? Do we listen to our body? Do we listen to our emotions? Like, how do we figure that out? It's three things. Here's how it works. So uh, just to kind of make sure everyone's with us, when you're talking about the Goldilocks effect, you start with the things that we know satiate you, which is a hunger response, satiation, how full it makes us. These are foods rich in protein, fiber, and water, essentially lean protein sources, tons of vegetables, and high water, low sugar fruits, things like berries, apples, pears, citrus, that kind of thing. That's a very paleo-ish diet, isn't it? Wild animals don't get fat on them. They're very lean. If you ever had elk, you're not getting bacon off of elk. That stuff is lean <laughs> as, as crap, yeah. right? It's just lean. Yeah. So you start there, but that's satiation. Everyone knows if someone said to me and you, they said, hey, hey, how do I lose weight? I need to, I need to get two weeks. I need to get in shape for my, you know, my high school reunion. Well, I'm going to tell them, eat chicken and broccoli. Eat chicken and broccoli all day. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows chicken and broccoli satiates the hell out of you. It will fill you up, mm. but it does not satisfy you. That's why people can't keep eating chicken and broccoli. So to satisfy you, now you need to take starch, fat, salt, sugar, sprinkle enough of that stuff on there like condiments to make your food taste good. For episode 46, Dr. John Gray, author 
of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus to talk about ADHD, brain health, and sex addiction. Dr. John talked to us about the instant gratification model, how it currently changes the limbic brain in this hyper-stimulated society, and the effect of that hyper-stimulation long-term on the brain and in our intimate relationships. We'll go into ADHD and nutrition, why sugar affects the nervous system in such a deleterious way, and understanding the dopamine system and how our behaviors, specifically women's brains, can be wired for overwhelm and become addicted to stress in the same pathway as heroin. Dr. John also talks about the minerals that can help relax the brain and reduce stress. Be sure to check out episode 46 for the full interview. And I realized, whoa, all of the normal kind of problems that kids, challenges that kids will have based on their temperament, they become exaggerated based upon the hyperstimulation in our world today. When you put an iPad in front of a little kid, you watch him, he goes into a meditative state instantly because pain produces hyper amounts mm-hmm. of dopamine, similar to what happens when you give a dessert to a kid. Uh, they'll go right into complete meditation on that dessert, but then afterwards they go kind of berserk. They, they become dependent upon hyperstimulation, and this is what's happening in our society. Stimulation always gives us dopamine, which is pleasure, but when it's hyperstimulation, too much stimulation, then normal stimulation is boring and flat and not good enough and not enough. And it creates all kinds of symptoms. So you see the younger generation, we want all this romantic feeling, which is fantastic, hyperstimulation of romantic feelings. Then suddenly you, you become bored because, and it's not enough. And people move on to another partner rather than being able to create massive pleasure and fulfillment from normal stimulation. Do you feel like the stimulation piece, it just takes more work to actually live life naturally? And I feel like the temperament that men and women of any age experience is in this society of instant gratification. What is the correlation between ADHD and the growth of ADHD and ADD in correlation to this kind of psychology of instant gratification? Well, you just hit the, the most powerful phrase right there. Instant gratification is our society, and that is the ADA. That's, that's basically what's causing ADHD. If you look at a hyper kid, he's hyper because his attention goes one direction, and he immediately goes, now I want more, and he has to go to something else. He becomes too bored. If he's not busy, 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 he'll become frustrated and bored. The distracted child always is sort of going to something new and different, new and different, to follow through is very difficult. It becomes too boring and flat. There's a resistance to that. So this boredom is basically if we we demand the instant gratification. And what I explain in the book is the way the brain works. And it's a little tricky. I want to just attempt it. It's just, it's like when you, you have dopamine, which gives us motivation and pleasure and focus and interest. Anytime we have pleasure, focus, motivation, or interest, The brain is releasing dopamine. Now, when dopamine gets released, you get all that pleasure when it goes into a receptor site. If too much dopamine is released, the body regulates itself, and it actually removes your receptor sites. So an example of this would be if you took cocaine, just one use because it's so stimulating. It produces so much dopamine, people feel like they're... They're Superman. They feel like heroes. They feel great. They feel fabulous. Like I just won the Olympics or something. And that's what dopamine does. But it's too much. And the body says, oh, that was too much. So we're going to take away 30%, 28% of your dopamine function, which now means normal stimulation, like saying, hey, buddy, how you doing? That would be normal social interaction becomes one third as pleasurable. And that means life becomes boring. Same thing happens with sugar. You know, when you eat it, you know, you give a cookie to a child the first time, one cookie tends to be completely fine. That's all they can eat. They, they go, wow, that was great. But then what happens is you get this desensitizing of dopamine receptors, the eventual downregulation and disappearance of part of your dopamine receptors. And now in order to feel alive and pleasure and interested and motivated, you need a higher stimulation. It's like a little screen TV is kind of boring. We need a bigger screen. Then we need a big movie screen. It's the stimulation. And it's not bad to occasionally have high stimulation. That's parties. That's fun. But what happens is after the high stimulation, you have to rest the brain. You have to relax the brain. You have to come back to nature. And life is a little flat and boring, not a whole huge flat and boring. And then those receptor sites return and you restore balance. 
But when we get super high stimulation, it takes longer for the receptor sites to come back up. And you also need extra nutrition to help those receptor sites appear again. You need to produce stem cells in your body. And for that, you need healthy gut function. You need a digestion. You need amino acids. You need B vitamins. You need omega-3s. So, you know, that's where the solution is. What I just described is when you provide your body with extra nutrition, it helps the brain come back into balance. But you still, you can't come back into balance if you keep depending upon hyperstimulation. So for women, you know, the women listening, what they don't realize is that their brain is addicted to worry. This is one of the most common phenomena that I see for grown women and even for young teenage girls as well is they're becoming overwhelmed. Now I've been doing this, you know, 35 years and I've watched this term overwhelm increase, increase, increase. Not that some men don't feel it, but women feel it way, way more. And it's basically, we can now look at brain scans and see that when you're overwhelmed and you're worrying, the same part of the brain is being activated. The dopamine part of the brain is being activated is the same as heroin. You get addicted to worrying. Some people get addicted to anger. Some people get addicted to drama, uh, feeling victimized. Grieving can actually become an addiction if you don't have the right nutritional support. UCLA approved that, that when parents are chronically grieving their children, this say, and they can't feel happy again, they have to go on antidepressants and all these things, which again, I see natural solutions for, but they, take, they give them the antidepressants and so forth. And what they found is that the same part of the brain is being activated when they're chronically grieving that happens when you take heroin. So it, it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem reasonable, but actually it's when you face danger that makes you feel alive. When people are grieving, at least they feel alive. It's not a positive experience, but actually on one level, it's a good experience. You're feeling all this love for the child that you're missing, but you're not experiencing present time, happiness in present time. That's why we want to help the brain to come back into the moment and be happy with what's here rather than having to create drama or addiction to foods. You know, sugar is a major dopamine stimulator, so it creates hyperstimulation in that part of the brain that heroin affects. So we get addicted to sugar. You mentioned for nutrition wise that sugar actually reduces lithium in our brain, reduces the ability to create dopamine. And you talk about using sugar products when you feel great. If you're having a great day, enjoy some dessert and, you know, enjoy your treat. But when you're feeling low, eating sugar when you're already feeling low can just exacerbate that. Can you unpack that a little bit, John? Yes. Uh, first of all, sugar uh, does create hyperstimulation of dopamine. Uh, but what also what sugar does, which is not good, is it depletes the brain. At that hyperdopamine stimulation, depletes the brain of lithium. Lithium is this cofactor for making serotonin in the brain. So you know, refined sugar. If you get you know, one of the sources of sugar is beets. We get most of our sugar from beets. And if you actually look at the fiber and then the mineral content in beets, it's the highest content of lithium. Lithium is a natural mineral that our body requires to process energy, particularly in the brain. And so when we suddenly have a big burst of energy in the brain from sugar, you use up the lithium in the brain because you weren't putting the lithium along with the sugar. Uh, lithium is, you know, was discovered many years ago in, in uh, natural springs that people who couldn't sleep, who were overwhelmed or depressed, or anxious. This is the Australian community, right? Yes, and American committee. I'm going up to, to I mean, I vacation up at Lithia Springs uh, where they have um, the hotel's Lithia Springs Resort. You just, they give you bathtubs right there and you get these baths of lithium. Uh, I used to have a spa, which was uh, people came to for lithium uh, hot tubs. I mean, it is an amazing substance. It's been around for thousands of years where people would go for healing, sulfur and lithium, the two most healing minerals. But they found that these the anxiety would go away, depression would go away, relaxation would increase. So then they decided, well, let's, let's mine up some lithium and give it to people who have big problems and see what happens. And then it didn't work. It didn't do anything unless they put really toxic doses because it's a salt. So if you take too much of anything, it's bad. But the right amount is good if it's good. Well, lithium is very much needed, but you don't need a lot of it. And so they started giving a lot of it for, psychi for psychiatric patients, for bipolar, and it worked. 
except that it had dangerous side effects because people were taking toxic doses. Well, a Dr. Hans Nieper discovered that if you if you take lithium, same lithium, but you bond it instead to instead of bonding at the carbonate, you bond it to uh, a substance in mother's milk called oratic acid. You bond it there, and you get lithium orotate. Then you only need to take as small milligrams, you know, maybe five, ten milligrams, tiny, tiny bit, and it crosses the blood-brain barrier because it's bonded to the substance in mother's milk, and the brain gets what it needs. And the more sugar, the more stress we under, the more we need to replenish our body with lithium. And you know, even the Buck Foundation, where I live here in in, in Northern California, they're now saying that it's a preventative against Alzheimer's. Uh, a New York Times article came out saying everybody should be taking some lithium every day. Uh, in some parts of the com- country, if you go to El Paso, the water naturally has more lithium in it. And if you look in the yellow pages, uh, it has the least amount of marriage counselors in the world. It's <laughs> in America. Uh, it, you know, this is just a substance should, that should be there. And uh, as part of our mineral support, unfortunately, unfortunately most people don't know that information and for kids who are hyper it's one of the immediate helps is lithium orotate but it needs cofactors as well whenever you add more of one thing you need to add more of other things too so uh, lithium orotate along with calcium orotate magnesium orotate potassium orotate zinc orotate those are your basic uh, alkalizing minerals that are so important for the brain to minimize stress A big part of our emotional health comes from how we feel in our body and how satiated we are throughout the day. I mean, it's hard to treat other people well and think good thoughts if you're walking around hangry. One of the best ways to cure satiety and satiation is to add in powdered collagen to your drinks, your waters, and into your foods. I use Perfect Supplements Collagen. It's sourced from 100% grass-fed cows. That means there's no hormones, pesticides, or synthetics because these are healthy cows that eat grass while the sick cows eat corn. So beyond these healing powers of collagen for digestion and joint health, it also has 20 grams of protein in two scoops, which helps to curb appetite and increase that satiety. One of the cool things about this collagen is that there's individual packets you can mix in water and you know what it tastes like? water. I mean, all of a sudden my glass has 10 grams, 20 grams of protein and all the health benefits of having this non-GMO pasture-raised collagen in my bloodstream. So don't walk around hangry. Pick up your grass-fed collagen. Feel better in your emotional body and your physical body every day. It's part of the Wellness Force Radio Bundle, and it's heavily discounted just for you. Click over to perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce to save 10% off the already discounted package and get more wellness in the process. On episode 55 with Gay and Katie Hendricks, Body Intelligence in a Modern World, Gay Hendricks explains why self-love, specifically contacting that deepest layer of love for ourselves, is usually what's missing from even the most advanced transformation programs and how we can tap into that. He'll explain the love versus fear model and how we're always at our deepest level, one of two things, either open to love or closed to fear. I ask Gay an interruptive question based on how do we love our fear and how do we tap into this to help dissipate that fear, as well as other topics from Gay's multiple decades in personal development and body intuition training. Be sure to check out episode 55 for the full interview with Gay and Katie Hendricks. I realized in this one moment, I realized the one person I had never trusted or asked was my own self. And so I paused there under the trees and I asked this big question. I said, I kind of directly talking to the universe. I said, what is the main thing that human beings are doing wrong that if we did it correctly, we would, life would unfold itself very organically and easily. And the information that kind of downloaded into me in that moment is the one thing that we're doing wrong is we don't love ourselves. We don't honor ourselves. We don't Uh, allow ourselves to feel ourselves deeply enough to contact that deep, pure consciousness at the center of ourselves. And so I stood there for the longest time, maybe 20 or 30 minutes, just letting myself experience all the things that I'd never fully let myself feel, like anger and sadness and fear, all those sorts of feelings that I'd kind kind of hidden from myself. And as I opened up to all of those, I really became a different kind of person. I felt like I kind of stepped into a three-dimensional version of myself rather than the two-dimensional version I'd been living out of. 
And it was a very important moment for me because I saw that down at the bottom of everything, you're either in love or in fear at any given moment, that you're either open to cherishing yourself, cherishing other people, the universe around you, you're opening to listening, you're opening to being present, or you're scared about something, and that closes the nozzle that Katie was talking about. And so I think it's a fundamental thing at this point of human evolution that we're going through, that we're, as a species, perhaps, if you look around the world at all of the tragedy that goes on in the name of religion and all the different things that are happening now with fundamentalism and everything, what you see that it's all fear-based, that, um, you know, in a sense, terrorists only want one thing. They want us to be as afraid as they are. Mm -hmm. And so that's their way of evening out the world is to make everybody as afraid as they are. But ultimately, love will triumph because love is bigger than fear. And you can test that out in your own being by noticing what happens when you love your fear. Mm-hmm. You know, that suddenly a whole new world opens up. How do we love our fear? How do we do that? That's so, that's such beautifully put, but I'm curious how that happens. Yes. Well, you do it exactly in this way. You find right now some part of yourself that's afraid. Check down in your belly or think of something you're afraid of. Maybe you're afraid of making a big commitment in relationship, or maybe you're afraid of going to the full level of your success and your chosen path. Whatever it is, find the fear down in there, feel it in your body, and then love it just like you love someone you know you love. Like you know you love your girlfriend, perhaps, or you know you love your parents. So use that love as a jump start to loving yourself just the way you are. Hmm. I just have to pause and take that in. That was really powerful. And um, I feel like I owe you for our session today. <laughs> I have never heard an explanation quite like that in my life. Drop a gigantic imaginary check for a couple of million dollars in the universal bank account. Thank you for that, Gabe. On episode 78 with Drew Canoli, self-love, juicing, and transformation, Drew tells us how our tribe affects our vibe, why you don't find your calling, you fight for it, and how focusing on what lights you up opens new layers of possibility that you can find through his Identity process. You'll see how Drew used visualizations in his early years when he had just a few people looking at his stuff on YouTube, including his mom, to turn that into millions of views and Organifi and FitLife TV to serve millions. We'll also learn how making your goal about the we will be a thousand times more powerful than about the me. Be sure to check out episode 78 for the full interview with Drew Canoli. You know, our, our tribe affects our vibe, obviously, right? So like everything we do in life is extrapolated from the people we're around. When you were in your 20s, what was the tribe around you? I mean, you've been on different videos talking about how you used to numb out and drink. And I think we all go through that. I know I'm raising my hand. I've done it. But how did your tribe change? I mean, how did you make the tribe that would actually give you that space to create that gratitude practice? Well, I think it's getting real clear on who you are. Like, what are the qualities that you love about yourself? And I remember doing this. I try to do it at least once a year, but I write down all the things I love about Drew Canoli. And I, li- I write down also all the things that I dislike or that I need to improve upon. And when I write that down, I visualize connecting with people that share those similar morals, those similar rules for life, the, the similar um, ways of being, right? And because I'm being a certain way, they say you attract what you are, I bring in people that have that similar vibration to me. In our whole business, I mean, literally every single person on my team has that uh, similar vibration. Your vibe attracts your tribe, right? Mm-hmm. And FitLife TV has literally been the demonstration of that Organifi, same thing. And we just continue to bring on board people that are tapped in, tuned into a larger vision for what's possible with the human race. And because of that, we will be successful. We will not only be financially successful, but we'll be successful where it counts. And that is literally changing the way people think about themselves, the way they show up in the world and the way they feel. You made a video and it was specifically around three steps to finding my true calling. But something was really, it hit me in the chest, Drew. You were like, you don't find your calling, you fight for it. 
Tell us about that, man. Yeah, I think a lot of people are out there trying to find what their purpose is. When you clear your space, when you put yourself in a place where you can just really start listening more, it's going to show up. It's that thing that's always been there, more or less, that you love, that you think isn't possible. Right. When you go into the bookstore, if you if you remember going into a bookstore, I used to I still go to these once in a while. I used to go in every single week and I would go to a certain section in the bookstore and it was always personal development, spirituality and health. Yeah. And I loved being there. I would spend hours in the bookstore in this particular place. And this was at a time when I was running a credit and debt settlement company. So I thought if I'm spending hours in this place and life can you can create anything that you want in your life, anything is possible. Why can't I do that for a living? Why can't I create some type of health platform for a living and really make it happen? And that's literally what has unfolded and continues to unfold is just really going after that thing that lights you on fire and fighting for it. Like there's a thousand million other health influencers out there that are shooting videos online, that have their own products, um, that have TV shows, all this other stuff. But I'm not focused on that. I'm just focused on what brings me to life and in me coming to life, when people see that, that's magic because not only are they inspired and they'll buy Organifi green juice in that moment of me coming to life, but something resonates inside of them and they start to see what's possible within who they are. Like, whoa, I I saw this video ad on Facebook and this guy was selling me this green superfood but he wasn't just selling me green superfood. He was actually being a certain way. And I saw the way that he was being in yeah. this video. And it's inspired me to um, make a video and pursue my uh, my artistic career. Like I, I, for some reason, I just feel like painting tonight and I haven't painted in years. Hmm. I think that type of joy that we have as humans gets lost sometimes when we're constantly looking at the numbers and we're stressed out about our finances or a past relationship. But if we can just admit as much childlike joy as possible, like that's the real separation. That's when the rubber meets the road and you really start to create that tribe on a whole new level. Man, so powerful. And what you're talking about is a drop in the ocean, which is what we all are. What would you say though, Drew, in a few sentences? I mean, what's your greatest passion and purpose as you know it right now? Yeah, my, my greatest passion and purpose is to totally live in the present moment and just have as much fun as humanly possible. Not take life so serious, be kind to myself and just admit so much self-love so that people can't help but see that and want that for them. And if we can all do that, that's what's going to be the thing and the catalyst that changes the world. Oh, dude, I got chills when you said that because I'm thinking about 2009 when I was figuring out what the heck I was going to do with Wellness Force. You know, this path, man, of finding purpose or as you say, fighting for it, it's not linear, Drew. You you even have this piece, you call it the why identity process. I love mm-hmm. this, man. Having a why that makes you cry. I mean, that... I don't think there's, it's self-explanatory, but can you tell us how you came up with that? Yeah. So everybody has an identity in their own mind of who they are, right? And most of the time, the identity is just like a, a window with a bunch of bugs on it and mud and all this crap that the world throws at us and tells us who we should be. So over time, you really can't see through it anymore. Mm-hmm. And when you're able to see through a window, it's beautiful. You, you can see the light coming out from inside it and it touches you. It touches your heart, your mind, your soul. So as human beings, every day we have a decision to make, and that is to clean that window off. And the fastest way that I've found to actually clean that window off is to get so plugged into your why that it literally makes you cry. And to do that, we have a 90-day process that we bring people through. Long story short, you know, and and with our business, we're focused on health because people come to us primarily, they want to lose weight. So how do you do it with a weight loss goal? Well, uh, why do you want to do it? And it's not this superficial thing. It's not because I want a six pack and I want to have abs and I want to look like I'm on the cover of a men's health magazine. I think that's secondary or even third or last, however far down the line it is. It's truly because the the most powerful identities I've heard is it's because I'm going to be 55 next year and I have a grandson who was just born and I want to be able to go out in the yard 10 years from now when I'm 65 and I want to be agile, I want to be able to move, I want to be able to express dominion with the football and just express joy with my grandson when, he, when he's out there. And I can see myself doing that right here, right now 
But the way I'm currently headed, I'm going to have a heart attack in three years. The doctor just said I had high blood pressure. I had mm. high cholesterol, said I'm about to, to leave this planet, and I don't want that. So I need to make a change, and here's why I want to do it. The second is, what do I want to look like in 90 days? What do I want to feel like is the third. And then what do I want people to say? So literally, you're attacking different areas of the brain by hearing it, seeing it, feeling it, and uh, being it. And when you're why when you really get clear on your identity, your goal happens a lot faster. So, and it can be used for anything. You know, if you're, if I said, uh, Josh, on a scale of one to 10, how are your finances right now? Where would you like to be and where you are? Mm -hmm. And you, you gave me this number, like I'm a five. Well, let's close the gap. What would it take to be a level 10? And how do you need to be? You know, let's put a year on it. Your year is your transformation for your financial goal. And you want to be a level 10. And right now you're playing at a level five. What does a level 10 look like mm -hmm. when you wake up? What does it feel like to be making millions of dollars a month or whatever your goal is? What is it? What are your friends telling you? And I did this at the beginning of Fit Life TV. And the reason we still do this today, I wrote out all the emails that I wanted people to say about the videos when they would watch them. Drew, I just watched your juicing video and I used turmeric and I got rid of all the inflammation in my body. I'm so excited. Thank you. I can now walk again, right? And I, I would just literally come up with these stories and these scripts of people that I had not met yet. This is when I was getting like 12 and 20 views. Yeah. Some people might say, oh, this guy's ta he's talking about witchcraft and all this other stuff. Yeah, he's Mr. Woo-Woo. It's Mr. Woo-Woo. <laughs> Which the audience, everybody knows about Woo-Woo on Wellness Force Band, so you're safe here. All right, good. So I, we can go Woo-Woo on we this. We can go total Woo-Woo. Yeah. And just scripting all those out, I can go back and pull those up now. And I have a folder of probably about 12,000, I think 12,400 the last time I looked. And this is just screenshots of people writing in on Facebook and leaving um, comments of how it Organify or how juicing has changed their life or how one of the videos changed their life. Mm. And if I'm ever in a funk, if my vibration's a little low, I'll go in here and just snoop around for like 10 minutes. Yes, that is awesome. It just raises you up so fast. You realize that it's not about you. It's not about me. Fit Life TV is not about Drew Canoli, Organifi, none of that. It's about the people that are in the community. It's about the we. So getting rid of the me and tapping into the we, like that's powerful. And that's part of the identity process as well. On episode 86 with Mark Devine, we discuss creating the unbeatable mind. Mark shares about resilience and mental toughness from a 20-year-plus Navy SEAL veteran career, why the warrior in all of us is committed to just two things, one being self-mastery and the other is service. But that journey, as he discusses with us, is made up of the five mountains that he's found to be the most powerful in all transformation. They are physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, and intuitional. Through these five mountains, Mark discusses what opens up the heart of the warrior and at the same time allows us to step into our power. This gives us better decision-making faculty for ourselves and affects the world and people around us in a positive way. One of my favorite questions on all these podcast interviews was asked to Mark in this following short clip. Be sure to check out episode 86 for the full interview with Commander Mark Devine. I think this is the power about what's so compelling about you and your work, Mark, is that you're a seal fit background. You have this mental toughness, but you also lead with your sword and your heart at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you remind me so much of the work that I've learned through David Dita, the way of the superior man. One of the things that you talk about is this resilience and mental toughness. I'm curious, though, how did you maintain this openness of the heart from training in one of the most dangerous environments for decades, how did you maintain your openness and your softness, but also your ability to hold the sword and strike when needed? I mean, how is that possible? You know what? It's a simple concept, but it's not easy, right? Just like a lot of things in, that, that are valuable or worthy in life. What I learned, and, and, and not all warriors are able to do this, you know, the PTSD essentially is a shutdown of the nervous system and the heart. And, and so, you know, you can't open up to the majesty anymore. And, um, and so people get really, you know, they, their souls basically get snuffed and they're, and they're dying. And, and it's a horrible, horrible thing. And, uh, you know, 22 veterans a day are committing suicide. And, you know, we've got to help these people um, because they're warriors. But what, they, what I learned is that the warrior is committed to two things. One is self-mastery and the other is service, right? They're both important. They're like two sides of the coin or hand in a glove. We can't go serve if we don't work on ourselves every day toward mastery. So what I think has happened is in the military is you get a lot of people who do, do it for a job or they want to serve, 
but they didn't they didn't have the training and the methodology to 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 work toward mastery because it's a yeah. very specific thing. And so what I've done and what I learned because I was a martial artist before I went in the SEALs and I was very fortunate to have a grand master as a teacher, he taught me about mastery. He taught me that it was incumbent upon ourselves to, to elevate the training of our being, our human being, to the same level of importance as eating and sleeping. Now, this is critical, right? So the martial artist or the warrior wakes up every day and, you know, he's not like doesn't flip on the TV and check email. He first thinks, what's my training plan? What am I going to do to train, to develop myself and make sure that that's going to get in? Because that's a, a, a primary thing. And then the next thing is, what am I going to do to meet my mission? And that's the service part, right? They're both important. They're both critical. And so we don't do without them as a warrior. Now, I'm, I'm going back to your, your, your original question. The warrior's training of, toward mastery, by the way, it's a journey, not a destination. Like there is no there there. Yeah, there's no finish line. Mm-hmm. There's no finish line. Like I, yep. So I'm going to say, Mark Devine, you know, you – you, you know, you develop this program, you must be a master. I'm like, no, you know, the further along I get, the less I seem to know. And the more urgent it is for me to continue my training. And um, it's like every day I just empty the cup and see what can I fill it with? There is no there there. It's a journey because the closer you get, the further it seems away. It's a unique, you know, aspect of this. So, but the point is that you're working toward it. So in working toward mastery, what I learned through also through Nakamura and then the Navy SEALs was that it's, it's, it's not one dimensional, it's multidimensional. And that multidimensional includes the physical body. This is why our physical training as a warrior is so important. But the physical is just a means to cultivate and refine our mind and our emotions and tap into our intuition and then to get to the, the, the secret sauce, which is our, our warrior spirit or our heart center, that heart that you talked about. In fact, the word Kokoro, which is the word I use for my seal fit training, the hardcore training, means heart in Japanese. Not the physical heart, but the spiritual heart, the spiritual yeah. center. So my training with Unveiled Mind is to develop ourselves, take responsibility for developing ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually. When we do this, we go, we, we basically like a Russian, you know, Rorschach nesting doll, we kind of go through the physical to the mental. We develop the mental that allows us to get to the emotional. Once we refine the emotional lives, our emotional self, then our intuition starts to come alive and we'll be able to make more instinctual and, and have the insights that are going to drive us forward. And then we can get into that soft, you know, center where our, where our heart is. Mm. Once we tap that heart, right? It'll never close down again. It can only close down if you close it down from the outside in. But once you get in and open it up, then it's open, right? It's open and it'll be there for you. And you realize that nothing can hurt you, right? And so the ultimate warrior, the the, the warrior master is someone who's extremely humble, extremely um, emotionally grounded, and, and has cultivated a love, you know, for his teammates that, that is uncommon. And also has a love for his enemies because he realized that everyone has, you know, the same essence. It's just, you know, what's layered on top that makes us different. How do we have love for our enemies? How is that? What kind of construct do we pull from? Well, if you research and if you you do this type of training, you realize that you can't not because they're humans. Unless they're, you know, even, I don't know, maybe at the highest level, you know, if we were like a fight an alien race, that it, it might be a difficult thing to like have love for <laughs> alien race. But let's just say humans. We know what humans are, yeah. right? We all have the same raw material, right? And I know that ISIS is contorted in their thinking and everything, but they think that we're contorted in our thinking. And so, you know, ultimately, underneath all that, right, we, we all have a physical, mentally, emotional, intuitional, spiritual being, and we can at least respect that. And yeah. so respect is a form of love, right? Mm. Uh, and part of that respect and love is understanding. And so if I understand my enemy, I'm going to be better able to navigate them and to anticipate their moves and to, and to fight them. And so what, I'm not suggesting that, you know, because the uh, world-centric warrior has a love for their enemy, that they're not going to fight their enemy. That's not what I'm saying, because the warrior has a duty to protect, right, and to serve. And so that means to fight the enemy, the enemy that's intent on killing you or your family or, or destroying your way of life. 
It just means that you you respect and honor that, you know, there by the grace of God go I. You know what I mean? I could have, you know, we could have been born in Syria and be dealing with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just respect it and honor it. And then you know, it's going to make you a wiser warrior, a wiser person, and you'll make, you'll make better decisions for yourself and for you know, humanity. I hope you enjoyed this extra special episode where I brought you seven powerful minds for these actionable takeaways to support you in the new year. Next week, we have another expert interview with a special guest. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with somebody you care about that might be ready to receive a message like you did. Also be sure to check out the show notes today at wellnessforce.com slash podcast. Learn more about all seven guests we had on the show and listen to their full interviews for free on Wellness Force. We have some incredible guests coming up this year and I wanna thank you for being here with me on the podcast. Be sure to sign up to get first news of the episodes coming out and join the Wellness Force community on Facebook for free as well as the newsletter at wellnessforce.com forward slash news. Let's connect outside this podcast and into life. Now there's just one more thing left to do, and that is pick one thing you heard today and put it into action to affect your mind, body, and spirit in a positive way and be that force of wellness for the people around you you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.